Good to see you this morning. You can open up to Psalm 37 this morning, right in the middle of your Bible. As you can just tell by looking around and experiencing life uh, and living life, there are various approaches to um, to living life. And uh, I don't know if you like westerns, but I like old western movies. And um, and there's something about a western that, especially the old ones, what they used to do is this: uh, they would dress the villain or the bad guy in all black and a black hat. So when he'd come on a black horse, the music would turn dark. And this was for early moviegoers who weren't as astute as current moviegoers. And it was basically communicating to the person in the, in the audience, this is the bad guy, right? And then if it was the Lone Ranger or someone else, often you'd have a white Stetson or something else. But they, they made it really crystal clear. Um, it's interesting because if you look around today and you just think about life, it's, it's a little bit more complex than that, isn't it? Uh, there are people that you thought were the good guy or the good girl, and they weren't. They turned out to be the evil villain in your life, and it, it just wasn't readily apparent to you that way. However, I think the Bible actually uh, gives us indication. Um, let me just show you this proverb here. This proverb serves a couple of purposes. One is to indicate this, that whether you've been duped by greed or by lust or by pride, or by drink, or whatever else it might be that makes a great Western story or a, a life story that we can relate to, uh, many have been duped pretty, pretty bad. Proverbs 14.12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way to death. Now, there's also a great verse to pull out, ladies, when your husband or boyfriend um, is not asking for directions and you're desperately lost. And you say, you know what, honey, I feel led to have a Bible study. And he goes, wow, that sounds really spiritual. And then you pull this out. Um, yeah, that may not be the wisest choice. Never mind, don't do that. Um, there's, a, there's a contrast in this psalm that, that we're going to look at that basically contrasts the wicked and the righteous. And I want you to think almost like that old Western, you know, a person in a black hat, person in a white hat. And it lays out for us, although it's confusing and convoluted at times, the Bible actually lays it out in such a way that it's actually simple enough for a child to understand the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. We're going to talk more in depth about the, the wicked and the righteous shortly, but that's where we're kind of heading. We've been looking this summer at this idea of what does it mean to be controlled by the love of Christ? And for those of you who have been in love or are currently in love, you know that those who are in love and controlled by love do crazy things. Uh, when I was engaged to my wife, I lived three states away from her, and um, she, she was able to fly relatively for free because her dad was a pilot. And she would fly, even for a very short period of time, she would fly out to visit me and hang out with me in, in Colorado. And on paper, it didn't make a ton of sense, right? The amount of time that you travel, the headache that it might have been to get there, but to both of us it made perfect sense. Why? Because we were in love. And you do crazy things sometimes that those who aren't in love or aren't in love with that person would, would deem illogical and it wouldn't make sense to you. Do you know that the normal Christian life is anything but normal? I mean, if you're truly smitten by God, if you truly get who loves you, this one who's by your side that we're talking about, you do fanatical crazy things. Just like someone who's in love. We talked about how the Psalms basically are this, this middle-aged man. Many of them written by King David, a king, a CEO, a powerful warrior, who's lovesick 
and writing these things and to, to talk to this person face to face, you'd think he's lost it. You would counsel him to go get, go get logical and go get straightened out. And yet here it is smack dab in the middle of our Bible and it's the songbook that the church has used for thousands of years now to sing back praises to our lover, God. Psalm 37 is what's called an alphabetic acrostic. This would be something similar to us taking the alphabet, our current alphabet, and using that letter to kind of introduce each stanza in the psalm. It's a, it's a literary writing tool that's, that's been used for artistic purposes. We don't really catch that because we don't know the Hebrew, most of us. And so we don't just see that and go, oh, that's what it is. And it doesn't translate to English, but that's what's happening in this psalm. It deals with two major topics. One is the apparent prosperity of the wicked. Now, I'm not going to talk a ton about this because a few weeks ago in Psalm 73, we talked about how uh, the, the, the wicked appear to prosper. I told you about what it was like to be a bank teller, poor, starving college student, and I was dealing with the massive high finances of the strip club across the street and the used car dealers down the street, every one of them who loved to come and brag to me their latest wicked conquest. Here I was eating top ramen trying to make ends meet as I studied God's word to pour my life into ministry and I saw the apparent contradiction there. I thought, wow, Lord, it sure looks like the wicked are prospering and those who are trying to walk in your ways aren't doing so hot. But I cling to you nonetheless. We're not going to even get into that, but read this psalm, verse 1 through the end, and you will just see that poured out by David as he writes. The second major topic that's talked about, and this is where we're going to land on, is the need to trust in Yahweh, God, and find refuge in Him. Let me show you how these two kind of tie in. Oftentimes, when you see those who don't seem to be um, striving after God, those who aren't disciplining their life to walk in His ways, those who aren't seeking the narrow way and saying, God, no matter what, I'm going to trust your guardrails. Isn't that often the times we need to trust the most? When we see those who are outside the lines, living it up, having a great time, and we go, Lord, why? Why am I here? Why am I doing this? Is it, is it right to trust in you? We have this little, this little crisis of faith that, that can go on. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples and they're in the midst of a storm. And they're freaked out for a couple of reasons. But just listen to this. It says, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. We just sang a powerful lyric that ought to land heavy on us this week. Our lover holds. Our lover holds. Now, for those of you who weren't raised in the church, you're going to freak out a little bit, but this is the, the life of those who've been raised in the church. Okay, Some of you are going to track with me because you were raised in the church as well and learned this song. One of the things about kind of cool modern hip ministry is you don't learn all these great songs that we got to learn as the, as the parents. And I talked to some kids. I'm like, do you know the song? They're like, uh-uh, I don't know that one. But here, here it is, okay? Um, there's a song that I learned, and it's got this profound truth to it. I never saw the two sides to this truth until this week, and I was sitting here studying, and I thought back on this. But here it goes, ready? 
He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got, see how easy it is to learn? Whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Then it goes into kind of this cool riff. He's got you and me, brother. Anyway, it goes into this whole thing. It's really great. And there's you and me, sister. And as a little elementary kid, you're a boy, so you're poking people in the eyes. And, you know, you're jamming him. Anyway, it got a little out of hand. But, um, but here's what's cool. It leads on to this. He's got the itty little baby in his hands. And, it, and as, I, as I thought about this song, I thought, wow, there's a profound teaching that's going on into the hearts of little kids as we learn this song. And here it is. The big theological words for it is this. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's God's transcendence. Say that with me. Transcendence. You know what that means? It means utterly unique. Different than anyone you will ever relate to, ever. It's higher. It's more majestic. It's above and beyond anything. It's God's transcendence. It's the fact that he holds the whole world in his hands. But then there's another word, and, and I don't know who came for this, but these are cool words. The word is imminence. Say that with me. Imminence. You know what that is? That just means close. God is utterly unique. He's above and beyond everything. He's big enough, and yet he's imminent. He's close. We sing a song called Deliver Me where it says, sometimes you're closer than my skin. God is near, and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago as well. God's hugeness inspires awe while his imminence produces intimacy. Aren't you glad God didn't reveal himself as just one or the other? What if he was just intimate and near and came in a body? But you didn't understand, you didn't have a sense that God has the whole world, all of times, in his hands. You might be intimate to this person, but he wouldn't be, you wouldn't know him as the sovereign king. And you wouldn't awe and fear him. And yet if all you got of God was this awesomeness and the fact that he has the whole world in his hands, but you didn't know and have a deep sense that he has the itty little baby in his hands. It might produce awe, it might produce wonder and even fear, but I doubt that it would produce intimacy. God wants you to know, friends, that he is awesome, worthy of your worship, and that he's close. He's intimate. We just sang it. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. This ought to not add up in our, in our minds, and it doesn't. And yet that was, that's what God's revealed. Jesus doesn't hold just the weather in his hands, to put it back in, in Peter's story, but he reaches out his hand to grab sinking disciples and to pull them up and to save them. And that's a powerful picture. Look at verse 37, I mean verse 23 in Psalm 37, if you're, if you're already turned there. And it says this, The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. The Lord holds us. The first feeling you have there is that the Lord holds us. And this is the massive idea that we want to draw out to you. Think about holding God's hand. And the fact that God would choose to reveal Himself that way to us. The fact that God delights in the very details of our lives, we talked about last week, that our lover knows. Our lover knows our secrets. He knows our scars. He knows what we're striving for. 
Both good and bad striving. Both striving that leads to life and the striving that leads to death. He knows. He knows every detail of our lives. We're created by Him, yes, but He also directs our steps. He establishes our days. Now, holding hands with God is a hard picture to grasp for us. Um, so let me do this. Let me take it out of holding God's hand for a minute, and let me just have you think about hand-holding, okay? Some of you might be holding hands right now. And so you're like, oh, I'm living the illustration. That's exactly right. I was at the beach on Monday. We got to take our family over to Capitola, and we were walking along, and I was going back to, I think, check on the meter or something, and I was walking with... Uh, with one of my kids, and all of a sudden this persistent hand comes and grabs my hand and finds my hand. I'm like, oh. And I realized after the fact that we had stepped off of the sidewalk into a parking lot, and when you're this tall, you notice very clearly that it went from cement to asphalt, and when asphalt is there, you reach up and you grab Dad's hand. That's the drill in our home. I didn't even catch that. I'm in a parking lot. There was, it was totally safe. So in my mind, I'm just heading to the car. I didn't catch the change. But here was little Tegan just reaching up and boom, grabbing that hand. And I grabbed the hand and I thought, wow, that's just cool. That's just like this little instinctive thing. And it's great to be her daddy. I love being her daddy. I love being the one who gets to be there and go, yeah. I didn't pull away and go, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I mean, that would just be, that's bad parenting, right? I mean, that's just not good. Um, but think about, think about hand-holding. We reach for a hand when we're insecure. My kids do this all the time. They come in and they, they reach for a hand when they're insecure. In fact, they, they do this absent-mindedly sometimes. Sometimes a kid will just come over and just grab your hand. That's done for comfort. Hands are also grabbed to express affection. And this can be between a child and a, and a parent. This can be between, um, between two who are, who are in love. And they just reach over and just, just grab a hand. Um, Sometimes people have just cheapened physical things so much that they don't remember this, but I hope you remember holding hands with the person that you're in love with for the very first time. There's just a rush to that. That's the affection. Sometimes a lover might hold your hand to express togetherness. There's something about walking down and just saying, hey, she's with me, he's with me, and reaching down and grabbing. That's the sense of belonging. Sometimes it's reached for when danger is imminent or near, and that's for safety. You reach out and you grab a hand, or you steady someone and you say, here, let me grab you. You are about to fall, and that's the word safety. And finally, holding hands can be done to, to show the way. You can grab someone here and say, let, let me show you. It's dark, or you don't know the way. Come here, you follow me, and that's leading. There's probably more, but think of these words, comfort, affection, belonging, safety, leading. The Bible reveals that God is holding the godly by the hand. And these are some of the byproducts of that. Now, depending on who you're holding hands with, uh, the word trust comes in, right? And, um, and the fact that it's God, I'm hoping, my desire in this summer series is that revealing the character and nature of God will draw you perhaps into love for the first time, perhaps back to your first love, the greatest love, the most encompassing love that you could possibly ever have. And just by seeing God, he would reveal himself as one who's trustworthy. I wonder what today you would describe as trustworthy. What do you think is dependable in your life? For those of you whose cars are going well, you'd say, my car. I'll give you one year. And sometime in this next year, you're probably going to say, this piece of junk. Man, this thing never works right. It's not dependable. 
I'm a Mac guy. My Mac right now, I would say, man, it's dependable. It works well. There's going to come a day when I'm ready to take that thing and chuck it out the window because it's not doing what I want it to do. And at some point, these things all break, right? Here's a lesson I learned early on as a parent. Uh, our first child got the brunt of some of our mistakes. We're still making them, but, um, but he got a lot of them. And one time he was, uh, I can pick from many, but <laughs> let me just tell you one. Uh, one time he, something happened. He fell or something, and, and, uh, and he was just screaming his head off. And he's a pretty tough kid. I mean, he had to be because we dropped him a lot. Um, and, and he's crying his little head off. And all I wanted to do, I mean, dads, what do you want to do at that point? You want to comfort your son, right? So I'm there with him, and I reach, and I grab his little sippy cup. This was the old sippy cups here with the little plastic thing. And I'm like, here, have some milk. He still loves milk. I still comfort him with milk. But he grabs the sippy cup, and he's like, ah, glum, 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 glum. And he cries like five times louder. And I'm like, what? That's always worked really well. And I take the sippy cup, and I unscrew it. Oh! It's been left out. It's sour milk. (laughs) Fail! All right? As a parent, it was the first of many times. Um, My son, there's a little twinge in him, and he's like, once in a while, Dad's going to pull that one again. And so parents, as much as we love our kids with our best intentions, we're going to give them sour milk to comfort them once in a while. Now, to think about... The fact that um, I got to hang out with my dad a little bit this week. He lives close by in town. But I know that my dad isn't always going to be there for me. Even right now, with the best of intentions, we're not always there for each other. He's not always able to be there. He's not always with me. One day, he's going to die and go home to be with Jesus. And he won't be with me then as well. As parents, we're going to try and comfort as best we can. But we will fail. We're not all that dependable. We're relatively dependable compared to some things. But then to to take and think about, this is where God's transcendence comes in, his uniqueness. To, To think about someone who is always there, always available whenever we need him, and that he will never, ever fail. You cannot say this about your closest relationship here on earth. It's the nature of God. Psalm 145, 14 says this, The Lord upholds those who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. That's a great passage in here for those who are hurting today, those who are falling and those who are bowed down. But let me flip the question for a second. Doesn't God also uphold those who are rising and those whose heads are lifted today? Things are going swell. It's true, isn't it? He upholds them as well. But it's not just true that individuals can forget this and lose sight of this. Whole nations can do this. How about the nation of Israel? Remember the cycle? If you read the Old Testament, you start to get this little drumbeat going on. Wow, they seem to really mess up, get to the bottom of the circle, and then God, and then they humble themselves, and, God, and, and they finally seek God, and then God raises them up and says, don't forget me when you're prosperous, and they get up here. What do they do? They forget God. What do they do? They look around at the wicked and say, they're prospering, they have a king, they're prospering, they're worshiping those poles. We should do that same thing. And then begins the downward slide. And we say, man, those Israelites, how about the U.S.? Which spells us. (laughs) I mean, isn't that us? We we get blessed. And, And again, if you don't think you're blessed in this country, if you ever flippantly throw out the term, I'm poor, I'm broke, I have nothing, please go travel somewhere. Go to Mexico. We're blessed. And as a nation, we've forgotten God. We aren't a nation that has humbled ourselves and say, Lord, uh, we've sinned. 
We fall at your, your feet. We cry mercy. We hope in you. We lift our head to you alone because you alone have the hope that, that, that we need. That's not us as a nation. That's not how I would describe the United States. C.S. Lewis says this. It's a famous quote that God whispers to us in our pleasures but shouts to us in our pains. There's something in us as human beings that we just forget when things are going well. But we're all ears sometimes when we're in pain. He goes on to say that pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Sarah Young wrote a book called Jesus Calling. In it are these daily devotionals taken from Scripture, and it's kind of spoken from a first person of what Jesus might be saying through these Scriptures. Listen to this. She writes this, Difficult times can jolt you into awareness of your need for me. Whereas smooth sailing can lull you into the stupor of self-sufficiency. Maybe it's on a plane that you're grabbing the seat extra tight and it's not smooth sailing and you go, okay, Lord, I recognize my need for you. Don't you love that picture though? The stupor of self-sufficiency. Man, I look around at my own life and what's portrayed around me and what's portrayed in Westerns, by the way, what is it? It's rugged individualism, rugged self-sufficiency, and maybe it really is a stupor that we need to wake up from. Maybe this is why Ecclesiastes 7.2 says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. What about it? You're invited to a party or a funeral. Which one would you choose? Most of us would say, man, party on. <laughs> I'd rather go and laugh. The Bible, right in the middle of the Bible near Psalms here, is this idea that to go to a house of mourning, to go to a funeral is better. Why? It goes on to say, because we're all going to end up there. And to stop and think about what really matters, to stop and think about what really matters uh, is, is what happens at a funeral. To stop and consider your destiny, how you're living your life, where you spend your time. That's what I walk away with when I go to a funeral. Oftentimes at a party, I walk away with a good time some good memories, but I haven't stopped and evaluated life much. What if our prayer was this? God, whatever will draw me closer to you today, I accept. Whatever it takes to draw me closer to you, I accept. Now, I just listened intently because I knew what I was about to say to Jim's prayer. I didn't prep Jim on this. I didn't talk to Jim about this. But I think many of our lives are obsessed with safety, obsessed with comfort. Sometimes on a trip like this, what you'll hear is this, we pray for safety. Guard them from the drug cartels. Give them smooth passage. Let nothing bad happen to their car. Let no difficulty come. Please give them safe, smooth sailing. You know what? Jim didn't pray that. I listened. Near the very end of the prayer, there was a prayer for safety. It's not wrong to pray for safety. Call out to God what you want. But you know what I heard even deeper? That, that they would, would draw closer to Jesus on this trip. You know how that often happens? Not at a party, but at a funeral. Not in smooth sailing, but in difficult times. What if our prayer became so committed, we're so smitten by this lover that we pray irrational prayers? Not, Lord, protect, 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 safe, 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 comfort, ease. Please. But rather, God, whatever it takes. If there's a crutch in my life that right now is making my life easy, kick it out from under me. Remove it. Whatever it takes for us to be closer, for me to draw closer, for me to see my need for you, for me to see that you're holding my hand, whatever it takes, I pray that. I accept it. Wow. 
Will your prayer life change a little bit this week if you started to pray this way? I think mine would. I think that's where God's leading us and God wants us to go. And our brains so often kick into where is God because something's going wrong according to my timing. You only do this if you're in love. You only do this if you're controlled by the love of Christ. You only do this if you're affected, if you're smitten. It's the only way you can pray that way. Leonard Sweet in the book Out of the Question and Into the Mystery writes this. Christianity wasn't founded on a statement or even a rational argument. God didn't send Jesus to deliver a proposition. God sent Jesus to deliver a proposal. Will you love me? Will you let me love you? In fact, Jesus not only got on his knees to deliver this proposal, Jesus was nailed to a cross to deliver God's proposal. I want you to listen to this song right now. I'm going to invite Rob up to sing it. It's called Hold Me Jesus by the late Rich Mullins. And I want you to listen in this song as the words go along for both God's transcendence and his imminence. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my Prince of Peace? I wonder if you know God this morning in both those ways. During life's storms, an anchor holds, but it's not quite the same as a hand, is it? And God's revealed himself both as an anchor that holds in the storm, but you don't snuggle up to, to, a, to an anchor. He reaches out a hand and comforts that way as well. Second fill in the blank is this, that God holds judgment and by God holds judgment, I mean a couple of things. One is this, that he holds the authority. One of our friends here from church was in jury duty this week, and so he got to spend a lot of time in a courtroom. If you've ever been in a courtroom, you see a big uh, kind of picture of grandeur. There's a, there's a big throne-looking place, right, where the, where the judge sits. There's robes. There's a gavel. Uh, there's a whole kind of order to it all. And there's different things kind of stating who, and who, who has the authority, and the whole room even points that way. Then to take and think about God and think about the fact that he just breathes something into existence and his will is executed. He whispers and his judgments go forth. There's no robe needed. There's no high and lofty. There's no all rise needed to state, oh, that's the important person. His will is instituted by just a breath and just by speaking. God holds the authority. The word wicked is used 13 times, um, in, uh, starting in verse 10 in, in, uh, in Psalm 37. And then contrast that with the righteous, which is nine times. And what it does is it kind of ping-pongs back and forth. And I'll just kind of give you the summary verse for the sake of time. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says this, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked will be cut off. I told you that the setting of this psalm is a, is a contrast. So it's talking back and forth about the wicked and the righteous, the wicked and the righteous. And this is kind of a summary verse that kind of wraps up the big picture of that. It echoes Psalm 1-6, which says this, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Do you see the two paths? Do you see the two options in life? Walking in the way of the righteous or walking in the way of the of the wicked. Jesus echoed this. Listen to John chapter 3, starting in verse 36 from the mouth of Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son, talk about himself, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. You know what that would indicate? For all of you insurance types, that would indicate a pre-existing condition. The wrath of God remains on that person who doesn't believe. You know what he uses as a synonym with believe? Obey. Look at it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Obedience and belief go together. Often used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Not only does our lover hold the authority to judge, as spoken by the mouth of Jesus, as spoken by the prophets and by the wisdom literature, but also he is holding back judgment. Psalm 37.10, look at verse 10 for a moment. It says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. In a little while, uh, in a whole biblical perspective is this. That we're in an age right now where God is holding back. He is withholding judgment. The way we know this is this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. If we were to receive proper, just payment for our sin, we would be snuffed out, every one of us, the moment that we committed the crime. But instead there's a withholding going on. There's a holding back of judgment that God is upholding right now. Here's what God's revealed timing says to both saint and and sinner, and we'll define those in a second. But to the saint, he says this. Listen to Ephesians 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So some instruction to saints are that they're to walk in a wise way and they're to make the best use of the time. Well, how do you do that? There's actually instruction in the first part of Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 1 through 10, is quite instructional. I'm going to rattle off some notes I just jotted down about what a saint would walk in a wise way and how to make the most use of his time. Listen to this. He shouldn't worry or envy. He, sh he should trust in God. He should do good. He should delight himself in the Lord. He should be still. He should wait. The word wait is a similar word to the word hope. He should wait for the Lord. He should refrain from anger. He should forsake wrath. Now let me just ask you, that list that I just rattled off that you can go back and read Psalm 37, 1 to 10, is any of that shocking that that lands on the godly side and not on the wicked side? It's not, is it? You don't hear that and go, huh? The Bible says that's what, 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 what the righteous should do? That makes no sense to me. You know why? God's imprinted his conscience on us. We hear that and we go, yeah, we already know that. Sometimes, as a technique to avoid uh, responsibility for ourselves, here's what we do. We convolute things. I will often clearly tell my kids, this is black, this is white. You may touch the black one, you may not touch the white one. Do you understand? Yes. As a seasoned parrot, parent, not a parrot, as a seasoned parent, I then say, repeat back to me what I just said to you. And they say, Dad, I can touch the black one and not the white one. You got it? Yeah, no, no, look at me in the eyes. You got it? Yeah, I got it. What will sometimes happen? They'll come back, and they're not only standing or touching the white one, they're doing cartwheels on it. 
and standing on their head and licking it and doing things. I said, no, 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 no. I, I said, don't touch that one. And the break, you just go, where, like, where's the breakdown? Where, where do you not understand this? And sometimes, I know your kids don't do this, but mine do. Sometimes kids will just go into this long and rambling thing. Well, here's what I thought. No, 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 no. You shouldn't even be thinking at all right now because it's broken. Like whatever you're thinking, it's just, it's totally broken. When you think about the wicked and the righteous, here's what we sometimes do. We sometimes say, well, how can you really know? You know what it all harkens back to? A serpent in the garden that says this. Did God really say? Did God really say? You know what your answer should be as a saint? Yes, he did. It's settled. He did say that. Here's what I'd venture to say. If you were to walk out of this room and you were to say, uh, no, no matter what your religious background, no matter how many times you've been in church, no matter how many times or if you've ever, ever read the Bible, if you were to walk out of this building and just say, God, if you're up there, and I'm, I'm believing that you are because I'm talking to you right now, I am going to go and just start to try to live how I think you would want me to live. Do you know what I'm convinced of? I'm convinced that as you obey in what you know, God will continue to reveal himself more and more and more as you obey, as you go along. He will be corrective to you as you're moving in that direction. So much of it is spelled out that my six-year-old could teach a class on what the wicked and the righteous are all about. Easily. Easily. Sometimes we convolute it when we get older. To the sinners, to the wicked. What is God saying? Romans 2, 4. He says a lot to them, but there's good news. Let me list, let me, let me list two verses. Romans 2, 4, write it down, make sure I'm not lying later on. Here's what it says. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? We just sang about this. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads me to repentance. There's a lot of other things that, that, that could be there, but it's your kindness. Or do you presume on the, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His forbearing, His long-suffering is not meant so that you can go further and further into the trash heap and collect more and more scars and say, see, I'm getting away with it. It's meant to lead you to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 is talking all about the end times. And there's a, passage, there's a part in there that precedes this that talks about those who wag their heads, those scoffers who say, where's the Lord? Where's this promised coming? Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've felt that. Maybe you've said that. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's the godly trait of long-suffering. What is God saying to those who are in Him, to those who are saints? He's saying, get on it. The time is short. Don't walk as unwise. Live as wise. Make the most use of your time. Be on mission. What's the mission? It's right here. It's that all should reach repentance. Does your walk, does your time indicate, saint, that you're on that mission. 
Those of you who haven't responded to the love of God, are you, are you trouncing on the patience, on the forbearance of God this morning? The ultimate fate of various approaches to living life are declared plainly in the Bible. One, once again, time, time and again in Psalm 37 is this, is this idea that the wicked, their, their, their fate is destruction. So the question is this, who holds you in the here and now? Who holds you in the here and now? There's something that you've that you've put your hope in. And then secondly, what does your future hold? Sometimes going to a funeral is what prompts us to look at those questions. The good news is this. Sainthood, for those of you who are in Jesus, know this. Sainthood is a free gift. It was secured before you ever went looking for it. And it's not that saints don't sin, but they're no longer seen that way because of the one that we're in love with. Let me read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 20. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus Christ. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of of God. Working together with Him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And I close with this. Jesus telling a story. He's talking about a guy who's got such good grain, such a great harvest, that he says to himself, Self, you're doing awesome. He's in a stupor of self-sufficiency. He looks around and says, I can take it easy. I've got plenty. I've got so much stuff, I don't know what to do with it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down my storage barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. This is exactly what he does. Jesus' judgment, rightful judgment on him is this. You fool. You fool. Why would he be foolish for doing that? Well, there might be a number of reasons, but here's the kicker. Here's what I want you to see in the story. This very night, your life is required of you. There's going to come a time when the last grain of sand falls on our life, and I don't know what it is. The Lord has appointed for us all of our days. Many of us wander through life making plans for tomorrow and next week and next month, next, next year, as if we have it locked up. You may not get home today. I may be doing your funeral in a couple of weeks. You might be coming to or doing mine. You'll enjoy some refreshments. We'll say some nice words. Are you going to be found building into your kingdom, building bigger barns, esteeming yourself, hoping in that which cannot save? Or will you be found when Jesus returns about his mission, longing for him to come home, longing for him to return? My pleading to you, I, I, I implore you in the same way that, that Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5, is if you're not, be reconciled to God. If you're that wandering sheep, if you're the prodigal son today, come back to God. I had a great conversation with a guy out here on the lawn before men's group this week. 19-year-old guy, 
pleasant guy to talk to. He just started opening up and pouring some of his life story out to me. You know what he said? As we got talking, I said this. He said, yeah, I've never been happier than when I went to this camp called Camp Hammer in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And I said, you know what's cool about the Lord? You know what's great about the grace of God? You don't have to make any huge plans. You don't have to make any big preparations or jump through any hoops. You just start today. You just return today. And you find him as the loving father at the end of the road, looking for you, longing for you to, to, to welcome you back home. You know what the lie is? The lie is this. Get on a bit of a good track so you can bring something to God, so that you can offer to God kind of a good track record. Why? To show you're serious. Ever fall into that lie? How long does that need to be? A week? A month? A year? A day? As you read the Sermon on the Mount, you realize, wow, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't even speak without speaking some, some little falsity, even that I don't even know. That's a lie from the pit of hell to say somehow get your life cleaned up and then come and offer it to God. The only way that you will be seen as righteous, the only way is to have the perfect spotless lamb in your place to know your sin, to take on your sin. That's the gospel. And then to walk and live in the freedom of that. That's why we sing. That's why we celebrate. That's why we call God our friend. Band, come on up. I pray that you will wait, that you will hope for a God who holds the authority, holds the times, and holds you. Listen to this journal entry as the band prepares. Maybe you're in this place today. And these will capture some of your thoughts on on paper. Dear Lord, in the midst of much inner turmoil and restlessness, there is a consoling thought. Maybe you are working in me in a way I cannot yet feel, experience, or understand. My mind is not able to concentrate on you. My heart is not able to remain centered. And it seems as if you are absent and have left me alone. But in faith, I cling to you. Not only is God holding our hand, cling to His. I believe that your spirit reaches deeper and further than my mind or heart, and that profound movements are not the first to be noticed. Therefore, Lord, I promise I will not run away, not give up, not stop praying. Even when it all seems useless, pointless, and a waste of time and effort, I want to let you know that I love you even though I do not feel loved by you. And that I hope in you even though I often experience despair. Let this be a little dying I can do with you and for you as a way of experiencing some solidarity with the millions in this world who suffer far more than I do. Amen.